Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at WhitRiverside. Just again, looking forward, 3rd of March, Sunday the 3rd of March, actually isn't that far ahead, is it? Is it a couple of weeks? Two weeks, okay, two weeks, today's Vision Sunday, where we'll be uh, celebrating everything that's going on at Riverside and looking ahead to all that God's going to do. So uh, the kids will be in for that service, so that's Sunday the 3rd of March, do come along, we would love to um, have you with us. And 316, you can go, thank you very much, have a lovely, wonderful time with Amy and Martin, give them a good, big round of applause. Have a great time, learn lots of stuff, meet with God, and now... I'm going to welcome Simon. (laughs) Now I'm going to welcome Simon. (laughs) That was a bit of an Eeyore welcome, love, wasn't it? Sorry. Let's give Simon a massive round of applause. (laughs) I love Eeyore, do you? It's my birthday. No one knows. Uh, it's not my birthday, okay, but don't worry. So we're coming into land on our overflow series today. We've uh, spent the past couple of weeks looking at uh, just the whole concept of how God encourages us to grow in generosity, how he encourages us to steward and cascade what he puts into our hands. And uh, we've uh, been challenged to increase our giving, not our living, to think about how rather than trying to get bigger cups, we actually allow what's in our cups to overflow and bless God and bless those around us. And... Uh, Last week, Key did a fantastic job talking about bigger hearts, not bigger barns. And we looked at that story that Jesus uh, shared about the rich man who, who used his abundance rather than giving it away and scattering it and, and using it to bless people. He just wanted to stockpile it and uh, rest on his laurels. And uh, he, was, uh, he was roundly condemned um, by the Lord for that, that choice. So um, if you missed that talk, if you missed any of our talks, I really encourage you to catch up. It's so easy. Just go onto our website, click listen again. You can hear all the talks, they're all listed there very clearly, or you can subscribe to our podcast. And the reason I encourage you to, to keep up with the talks is you keep up with the flow and the journey that God has us on as a church. So even if you're away somewhere or you miss some Sundays, I encourage you to, to, just, to listen to the talk and then just keep journeying with us as God, uh, as God has us on this fantastic um, roller coaster of kingdom life. Yeah? yeah. You're all, yeah, good. You're all, you're all buckled in this morning. Good. So... Keely mentioned last week about this thing that we started called tithing. And I know some of you chatted to me after the service about that because often a lot of questions come around tithing. Uh, is it, um, you know, what is it? Uh, is it still valid? You know, are we supposed to do it? Do we have to do it? And uh, I wanted to share a bit of our story around that because uh, it's based upon, there's a key verse that often is used when we talk about tithing. It's in Malachi. It's the last Old Testament book before you come into the New Testament. And there was about a 400-year gap between the writings of Malachi and before Jesus came. There was this gap where people were waiting for the Messiah. And Malachi was a minor prophet, and he spoke about the state of Israel and the state of, of, the, of the nation and the hope that was sort of uh, in the messianic promise. And uh, he was challenged to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not be enough room for it, not be enough room to store it. 
And uh, this is the verse that God spoke to us about around 30 years ago when we were first got together as a couple and we were looking at our finances. And uh, today there are so many different opinions on this verse. You can chat to many people and have a different opinion on this verse. And so I wanted to do a bit of digging. And I, 30 years ago, I went into the scriptures and began to look at, you know, what does God say about this particular principle? And uh, as I said, is it just a temple tax? Didn't Jesus supersede it? Um, you know, what, what's it all about? So way back then, I did some digging. And um, I found that if you wanted to just justify this word, verse away, you could. You could kind of get rid of it. You could kind of say, well, Jesus replaced the temple, and therefore this verse is now essentially obsolete, and the word tithe or tithing isn't mentioned uh, much in the New Testament. Jesus does tell the Pharisees off for tithing without being compassionate. He says you, you, you tithe, but you've got to be compassionate. You shouldn't do one or the other. You should do both. He says that in Mark 23 and Luke 11. He also said that tithing doesn't make you any more acceptable to God. He, he told a story in Luke 18 about a, a Pharisee who went into the temple and said, I tithe, I fast twice a week, aren't I fantastic? And a man went in and actually said, I'm, I'm a sinner, help me God. And, and Jesus said that man went away justified, not the man who was trying to justify himself by his actions. So he roundly condemned the sense of any sort of self-righteousness that can come about by uh, ascribing to tithing. He said a humble heart is much more important. So I, way back then I didn't find lots of tithing verses in the New Testament, but I did find that Jesus spoke an awful lot about money. Um, I found out that 12 of his 38 parables were about money. And I found out that about one-sixth of the Gospels are about money, which is pretty crazy when you think about it. I also found a Jesus who said to me, I couldn't serve both God and money. He said that in Matthew 6. And he commanded me to store up my treasure on earth, not, my, not store up my treasure on earth, but store up my treasure in heaven. As I read on through the scriptures, as a new believer, I discovered an incredibly generous early church community that, uh, that sold possessions and made sure that the poor was provided for and they demonstrated uh, the gospel through sacrificial generosity and living. And so at the end of all my Bible research some 30 years ago, Key and I decided that we should, we should do this thing. Um, to paraphrase Proverbs 3.9, we said we'd honour the Lord with our money and with the first fruits of our income. So that's what we decided to do. Now, our oldest son Josh had just been born. Uh, Keely was therefore looking after him. She did a little bit of piano teaching in the evening to raise a bit of spare cash. I got a new job, which wasn't very well paid. And so we were pretty tight financially. But we still wanted to test this thing out. We wanted to start by giving 10% of our gross income, as Keely said last week. And it, for many people who looked on, particularly our parents and different people, they thought we were committing financial suicide because we'd done the maths and... Uh, there wasn't a spare 10% in, that, in that, those lines. But we felt God say, test me. And we were intrigued by two promises that, that God said to us. Well, the first thing we were intrigued by was, if we couldn't trust God with our money, why should we trust him with our eternal life? Amen? So, you know, if you're going to trust God with your eternal salvation, but you can't trust him with your money, then there's a bit of an issue there, isn't there? What's more valuable? Hopefully your eternal life. And so if you can't trust God with your money, then probably you should pack up the whole eternal life thing because, you know, you probably want to find something that's more investable in. But we thought if we could invest in God with our eternal lives and our eternal destiny and we can orientate our life around him, then he was worth trusting with our finances. And we're intrigued by this promise that's there in Malachi. Test me in this, 
and see if I'll not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing there won't be enough room to store it. And there's another promise in scripture we found. There was one in Proverbs 3. Honour the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will be filled with new wine. Who doesn't like a bit of wine, we thought. And then again, the words of Jesus in Matthew 6. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, essentially everything else you need, will be given to you as well. And I also found out that God loves a cheerful giver. So God seemed to be saying over and over again in Scripture, if you do this, then I'll do this. It's a promise with a premise, okay? So it means if you want to see this promise come to pass, you do this and I'll do this, yeah? And that was the thing we saw time and time again in Scripture. If you bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, I'll open the floodgates of heaven. If you seek first the kingdom, your phone will go off. (laughs) God was saying, if you do something, then I will do something in return. And not only will I do that, but I will love it when you reflect my heart of generosity. God will love the fact that you reflect his heart of overflow. And so we began way back then to tithe. And that became our our giving floor. It became our foundation on which we wanted to build over the years. And to add to that, as Katie mentioned last week, we began to think about how we could be generous in other ways, generous with our time, our money, our resources, our offerings and our gifts. So you could come to me today and say, has God opened the floodgates of heaven? And I'd say to you, yes. What's the new wine taste like? It tastes pretty good. Has God given us everything we need for life in all fullness? Yes, he has. Has God blessed us in innumerable ways other than in money? Yes, he has. Have we felt the love of God every day? Yes, we have. So we've tested the promise with the premise. We've said to God, we're prepared to take you at your word, and we're going to try this, and we're going to do it. And after three decades of doing it, we can say to you, it works. It works. But it only works if we are prepared to do the part that God asks us to do. And we'll get into that more in a second. And during our history, we've tied to four different churches that we've been part of or we've led. We've been uh, secular employment, we've been church employment, we've been a bit of both. And essentially, it doesn't really matter where our circumstances are. Personally, the important thing is what's God saying to us about living a life of overflow. Charles Finney, who was a minister in the Great Awakening in America in the 1800s, he wrote a lot of lectures on revival to revival, and uh, here it is. He said this, He reasonably (laughs) expects them, that's us, to bring in the tithes into his storehouse and devise and execute liberal things for Zion, that's for the kingdom of God. But they have refused, they have not laid themselves out according to promote the cause of Christ, and so the Spirit has been grieved and the blessing withdrawn, and in some instances a great reaction has taken place, because the church would not be liberal when God had been so bountiful. I have known churches who were evidently cursed with barrenness for such a course. They had a glorious revival, and afterwards perhaps their building needed repairing or something else was needed which cost a little money, and they refused to do it. And so for their meagre spirit, God gave them up. And so what Charles was saying was uh, that God, God is always incredibly bountiful towards in terms of his spirit and his outpouring in the 1800s. There's a tremendous uh, revival took place uh, in America that, 
it was described this way. It says, The community was stir. Religion was the topic of conversation in the house, in the shop, in the office, and on the street. Grog shops were closed. They were those off-licenses. <laughs> the Sabbath was honoured. The sanctuaries were thronged with happy worshippers. A new impulse was given to every philanthropic enterprise. The fountains of benevolence were opened, and men lived to good. Amen? And that was the nature of revival that was taking place in the 1800s. But Charles said, if we don't respond in kind to God, then we're sort of putting a a choke on what God wants to do in terms of the outpouring of his spirit. I mean, I could could use that as a vision for the next 10 years, because I'm for Whitstable. (laughs) Wouldn't we want to see that? God's been spoken about everywhere. Men and women living for good. It's our dream, it's our hope, isn't it? And when God comes fully into our hearts, fully into our hearts, then the natural response is a response of generosity, just as in Finney's day. The fountains of benevolence were opened. A new impulse was given to philanthropic enterprise. A sense of abundance and overflow was taking place in the life of the church. If you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Timothy 6. and look at the scripture today. Because as we live with a new hope, hope releases generosity. So let's look at 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. I can't hear any rustle of pages. It's funny, isn't it? How times have changed. Turn on your device. I'll put it on the screens for you as well. So this is the Apostle Paul. He's giving encouragement to Timothy. Timothy uh, has gone to Ephesus because there's trouble at Ephesus. Ephesus is an influential church in the early church community. And there's a group of new leaders who have infiltrated the church and they're teaching wrong things about Jesus and wrong ways to follow him. So Paul packs Timothy off uh, to Ephesus to, to deal with this. And he says this to him. And he writes a letter that arrives with Timothy and he gives Timothy instruction on how to help the church get back on track. And uh, uh, Paul says this to Timothy. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to, do, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And so this letter goes, it's a really important letter, this letter, not just for the church Ephesus at that time, but for us as well, because as you read 1 Timothy, it it shows us that what the church believes will really shape how it lives out its faith. So what we believe will affect what we do. Now, you can have stated beliefs, and you can have real beliefs, okay? So you might state that you believe something, but your actions will always belie your real belief, okay? So you, I've, I've used this example before. You might state that the speed limits are really important on the roads, yeah? But your actions say they're not quite as important as you might state they are, because invariably you might go a little bit faster. Nobody. Wow. That's amazing. Got one person at the back who's brave for a hand. So nobody drives faster than the speed limit here. That's extraordinary. <laughs> I'm going to spend my week following you round in the car. <laughs> <coughs> won't catch you won't catch you. <laughs> Stated beliefs and real beliefs. When we look to our actions, we always find out what our real beliefs are. So the way a church lives, the way a church acts, 
tells you about what the real beliefs are in the church, regardless of what's on the wall or what's in a statement or what's in a bulletin or what we speak about. The way we live shows us what we really believe. Yeah? So that's really important. And what, what, what was happening at Ephesus, Paul was writing to say, we need to get the church to live out the truth of what it, what it really believes, live out the identity of Christ, the generosity of God. And so that's what this section is about. And Paul commands those who are rich to live out that identity because recognising where that richness comes from and what God has given it for. And I think what we can learn from this, when, when Paul says, you know, put your hope not in wealth but in God, is that everyone's hope has a home. Everyone's hope has a home. So where does your hope live this morning? Where does your hope live? Where, when you think about your hope, uh, where does it live? Where does it reside? Does it reside in God? Does it reside in a pension fund? Does it reside in your, the security of your job? Does it reside in your partner? Does it reside in your property? Where does your hope live? Because hope has a home. And Paul says, think about putting your hope in God, not your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. So uncertain. And the best place to put hope is in God. Because God is like the Bank of England, plus, 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 because he can't be assailed. Jesus said, you know, where, when you put your treasure in God, then it can't rot, it can't be stolen, it can't be destroyed, it won't degrade. It is a place of eternal safety and security. So where's your hope today? Where, where, where is it living? Where is it living? God's looking to put Riverside on a really firm foundation of generosity and overflow. We've talked about that over two weeks already. And he wants us to become increasingly extravagant people of generosity. And every week we've done this series about how it works, looking under the bonnet, haven't we? Um, and today I want to look under the kingdom bonnet rather than Riverside's bonnet. I'm looking under the kingdom bonnet. So who wants to be refreshed by God? Yeah? So, you know what you have to do? Start by refreshing other people. Proverbs 11.25 says... Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. A promise with a premise. So if you want to feel refreshment from God, if you want to feel God's refreshing in your life, you start by refreshing others. Ooh, not so many keen people to be refreshed now, are there? Thank you. We start by refreshing others, and God refreshes us. You want to build new friendships? You start by reaching out to people, talking to people you don't know. You start by giving of yourself. And then you'll find that people start to give to you. It's a kingdom principle. Who wants to prosper? Okay, you want to prosper? You need to grow in generosity. Proverbs 11.25 says a generous person will prosper. So if you want to prosper in your job, in your, in your home life, in your uh, work life, in your career, you might have a company. If you want to prosper, then you start by being generous. As a generous person, Scripture tells us in Proverbs 11.25, will prosper. And these are the kingdom principles that God establishes. You do this, I'll do that. You do this, I'll do that. You do this, I'll do that. Over and over again throughout Scripture. Return to me, I'll return to you. Seek first the kingdom, everything else will be added. The promise with the premise. Often as Christians, we, we just sit and wait for God to do something without recognizing that we have a key part to play in releasing the kingdom in our life and through our lives. When we start aligning our lives with our identity, which is a citizen in heaven, then we start to see the release of God and the flow of God into our lives. Because your home, ultimately, 
is going to be with God, isn't it? If you're a follower of Christ, that's your eternal hope. That you won't, your body won't see death and decay, but you will be resurrected with God. So the best place to put your home, your hope, sorry, is at home with God, because that's going to be your eternal home. That's going to be your eventual home. This is like a rental. If you spend all your time refurbishing this, you're going to get to your eternal home and think it's a bit barren, isn't it? <laughs> that's the home that you should be looking to furbish. That's the home you should be looking to invest in, because that's going to be your eternal home. This is a rental. You're a tenant. And we spend all our time decorating and refurbishing this house or this home, we're missing the fact that our identity is in heaven. The worldly principle is to spend your money on all the things you need to spend, and then you figure out what you've got left, if you've got anything left, and from what you've got left, you might decide to give some of that away. The kingdom principle is to give first and spend second. Give to God your first fruits. Honour him with the first fruits, the first crops. So you give to God first, and then you figure out what's left. So you could say you give to God what is right, not what is left. <laughs> That's what you do. That's the kingdom principle. The book says, bring your first fruits. Seek first the kingdom. First, 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 first. Because what it does... It reminds us of our priorities. It reminds us of our home. It reminds us of our true destiny. That's why God does this. God doesn't do it this way around just to annoy us. He does it this way around because it reminds us of who we are in him. Your heart will always follow your treasure. Your heart will always follow your treasure. And so God says, if you change where you put your treasure, then your heart's going to follow it. So if your citizenship is in heaven and you start laying treasure in heaven, then your heart is automatically pulled towards heaven and things of God. You put your treasure where you want your heart to be. And your heart will follow. If you want to move your heart, start by moving your treasure. Because Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there is your heart. So if we start to move our treasure, then our heart will follow. Because ultimately, God doesn't care about your treasure he cares about your heart. Amen? And the biggest lever he's got to move your heart is your treasure. That's the biggest lever he's got to move your heart. God has chosen to fund his ministry on the earth through you because he wants to move your heart towards him. He's not bankrupt. He's not scrimping around for cash. But he wants to move your heart towards him. Randy Alcorn, who we mentioned last week, says this. God wants your heart. He isn't looking just for donors for his kingdom. He's looking for those who stand outside the cause and dispassionately consider acts of philanthropy. He's looking for disciples immersed in the causes that he gives. He wants people so filled with a vision for eternity, they wouldn't dream of not investing in it. They wouldn't dream of not investing their time, their money and their prayers where it will matter most. So you want to know where your heart is what do you find it easy to spend money on? What do you find it easiest to invest in? <laughs> well, potentially, that's where your heart is then. You can check your bank balance really easily. Okay, you can look at that and say, 
where do I find it really easy to spend money on investing? Now, obviously, you might have a mortgage and different things like that, essentials, but where do you find it easiest to spend money without thinking? It might be, well, it might be about 101 things. But where your treasure is, there's your heart. So I want to quickly summarise this series today by running through 10 things, 10 things in 15 minutes, um, 10 great reasons to live generously, okay? If you don't believe me, believe these. Okay, when you live generously, you express God's nature. We've looked at the last three weeks how we serve and worship an extravagantly lavish and generous God. So when you choose to live a lavish and generous lifestyle, you reflect Dad. You're a chip off the block, okay, which brings incredible pleasure to God's heart. That's why the scripture says God loves a cheerful giver because when you live generously, you look like the family. Okay, so you get to look like God when you live generously. You draw closer to God. Your heart will follow your treasure. When the rich young man came to Jesus and said, what must I do to have eternal life? I've done all the commandments. I've done this, that, and the other. And Jesus said, I know what you need to do. You need to move your treasure. So you need to sell all you have, give to the poor, and follow me. And the man went away sad because he wasn't prepared to move his treasure to follow Jesus. When you live a generous lifestyle, you draw closer to God because generosity is in the heart of God. You bring pleasure to God. In Philippians 4.18, Paul says, he's talking about financial gifts that have been raised for the early church. He says, they were given as a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice that was pleasing to God. Generosity with our finances brings incredible pleasure to God. It demonstrates to God that we trust him, that we trust him with provision. We trust him to supply to our lives. We don't have to hang on because we know as we give, he will give to us. It brings great pleasure to him. In Mark 12, when Jesus saw the widow put the two coins into the temple treasury, it was that woman that he said, she's, she's the one. She's the one who's living the kingdom of life because she's put in all she has. The rest, they're giving lots of money, but it's not proportionate to what I've given them. But she is giving sacrificially, and she's the one who's, who's noted. So when we walk generously, we walk in light of the Father's smile. God looks at us and he smiles because we reflect him, we reflect his heart. And we feel his pleasure. It helps us break free from materialism. We said before that stuff has gravity. The more stuff you have, the more anxious you are about losing your stuff. Where do you put your stuff? Where do you keep your stuff? How do you update your stuff? The more stuff you have in your life, the more anxiety you have. So some of the richest people on the earth are incredibly anxious about all the stuff that they now have. But as you, as you live a generous and simple life, it breaks the grip of materialism. You no longer orbit around your stuff. You orbit around Jesus. Are you okay? okay? I want to say God doesn't have a problem with you having stuff. Okay? God does not have a problem with us having possessions and having things. It says in the scripture we've read just in 1 Timothy, God richly provides everything for our enjoyment. God wants you to have a life of enjoyment. He's not, he's not wanting you to have a life that doesn't have enjoyment, but what he is wanting us to do is live a life of generosity. So our hope is never in our stuff. Our hope is always in him. And that's what, what, what Paul says in, in that letter. He says, don't put your hope in your stuff. Put your hope in God, because God is the best place for hope to live. We strengthen our faith. God uses our stuff to test us. Are you prepared to give away? Are you prepared to give of your stuff, so I can show you more of my character. In Malachi 3.10, we looked at this. He said, test me in this. It's the only place in Scripture where God allows you to test him. The only place. The only place. 
So when Satan comes to Jesus in the wilderness and he says, you know, throw yourself off the building, the X, Y, and Z, Jesus says, do not put the Lord thy God to the test. So we're not supposed to normally test God. But in this place, with your finances and your resources, God says, go ahead, try me. Try me and see what happens. Because again, he knows that finances are so closely linked to our heart. Our treasure and our heart are intertwined. So God says, test me. If you do this, I'll do this. The promise with the premise. We invest for eternity. You know what, guys? We come into this world naked and we leave naked. Maybe not literally. I'm not looking inside a coffin, but we, you know, we can't take anything with us. We can't take anything with us. There's nothing we can take into the next life. Only the things that we've sown into eternity. I was chatting with this the other day about this whole principle of storing up treasure. And this person said to me, well, aren't we all equal at the cross? Yes, we are equal at the cross. But Jesus also said, you can, you can put stuff into heaven of eternal value. Because Paul says, some of you will escape as if through the flames. Everything that you've built your life on will kind of get consumed by the refining fire of God. And you'll get into heaven, but you won't bring anything with you. There'll be nothing of eternal value. Whereas some people will be building with precious stones of eternal value. So when you sow into the kingdom, that stuff lasts forever. But the scripture says if you build with wood, hay and stubble, that stuff won't last forever. It'll be consumed by the fire of God. And so when we invest in the kingdom, we're investing for eternity. That stuff will live and go on forever. And we looked at Randy Alcorn uh, talking about the dot and the line. We live in this tiny little dot. You are such a dot (laughs) in history... It's shocking to think, isn't it? But we're just little dots in history, in the timeline of the cosmos. We are just dots in time. We think we're so important, but we're not. We're this tiny dot. But eternity is this line that goes on forever. And even though we live in the dot, Randy Alcorn says, live in the dot, but basically live for the line. Live for eternity. Live for where your home's going to be. So into the future. Furnish your eternal home Don't furnish your temporary home. We reap what we sow. Again, this is a kingdom principle. You can't get away from it. If you give out criticism, guys, guess what's going to happen? You're going to get criticised. If you gossip, guess what's going to happen? People gossip about you. If you judge, guess what's going to happen? You will be judged. Get the idea? If you give out encouragement, guess what happens? you receive encouragement back. If you're generous, guess what happens? You receive generosity back. You reap what you sow. It's a kingdom principle. If you plant one type of seed in your garden, you don't expect a different plant to grow up, do you? I've planted an apple tree. I've got an orange tree. That's really good. Look at that. It's fantastic. (laughs) If you plant an apple tree, you get an apple tree. Yeah? You plant an orange tree, you get an orange tree. What you reap, you sow. Promise with the premise again. So whatever you're sowing in your life, you will reap. You can't get away from that kingdom principle that is there throughout Scripture. So Proverbs 22.9 says, The generous will themselves be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. Jesus says in Luke 6, Give, and it will be given to you. Now Jesus could have just said, after all his work on the cross, 
Just give, will you? <laughs> I've done quite enough, so you just give. But he doesn't. He says, give, and it will be given to you. And he doesn't stop there. He says, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. You ever try to cram something into a box like porridge? You try to shake it all down and cram it in to get the whole thing in the box. That's what Jesus is doing. He's like, I'll give to you such a measure that's compacted down and pressed down and overflowing, you won't be able to contain it. For the measure that you use will be the measure that's used to you. Isn't that amazing? The promise with the premise. You give and God will give to you. Do you get the idea? It's transactional. (laughs) It's transactional. What we sow, we reap. If you want more of something in your life, then begin to sow it. And you will, I guarantee, reap it. If you want more love, start sowing love. If you want more compassion, start sowing compassion. If you want more generosity, start sowing generosity. We find happiness. Jesus quoted a saying, it's more, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So in the giving we find happiness. Some of the happiest people on the earth are Christian people who give generously because they're living fully in the light of the promises of God. Jesus said, if you want to keep your life, you've got to lose it. If you try and hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you want to find eternal life, you have to give it away. You have to lose it. And so as you give off your time, your energy, your money, your resources, you freely give, then your life comes to you in all its fullness. You'll get it back in spades. You'll find happiness and contentment that you never knew you could. It'll help you become free from financial anxiety. You know, so much concern we have around money and finances and provision. But when we're open-handed towards God, God will remove or help to remove that anxiety from us. It says in Deuteronomy 15, 7, don't be tight-fisted. Literally means, don't have a shut hand in the Hebrew. Don't have a shut hand in life. The problem with a shut hand is it's really, you can hang on to your stuff, but it's really hard for God to put stuff into your hands. And they're like this, isn't it? If you've got an open hand, then God can put into your hand and he can take from your hand whatever he chooses to do. So God may choose to put stuff into your hand and he may choose you to give to others and take stuff out of your hand. If you live a life of open-handed generosity, then you're free for God to use you as he sees fit. Don't live a life that's shut-handed because it prevents God from putting into your life the very things that he wants to release. A closed hand can't receive anything. And number 10, we get to see miracles. Amen? You can't get the stories and the miracles without partnering with God. We love to read a great story. We love to hear about a great miracle. But wouldn't you have, like to have miracles in your life? Miracles of provision in your life? Stories that, you, that are your stories? We only get those stories when we partner with God. When we, when we come alongside God. We heard about Charles Finney talking about hindrances to revival. You know, getting the church getting its generosity, its giving sorted out, is a massive green light to God to say, God, we're in a position for more of your presence and more of your purposes. It can be one of the hardest battles that the church faces to really get its finances in order with God because you've seen it throughout history. 
But when you do, and when we do, God comes in like a flood. Because he trusts us. He trusts that we can receive more of his promise, more of his power. So, I'll hit you pretty hard today, won't I? But, but I need to. Because I will be remiss of me as a pastor not to disciple you in the way of finances. Because we've lived this for three decades. It works. Not just to keep a roof over our heads and keep food in the cupboard, but it works to release kingdom principles. Part of the reason we're here is because we follow God's kingdom principles. We follow his leading. And as a church, I'd love us as we grow to be a people who wholeheartedly get a hold of God's promises. Because as we do what he asks us to do, he'll do the bit that only he can do. So as you sit here this morning, you might be in a number of different chairs. You might be somebody who's just started coming to church and you haven't even thought about giving yet. Okay. You might be somebody who's been around church for a while, still hasn't thought about giving. You might give occasionally. You might give regularly. You might give uber generously. Whatever chair you're sitting in this morning, I'd encourage you to ask God, God, how do you want me to increase in generosity? It's a question we continually ask ourselves as a couple. How, Lord, can we be increasingly generous with what you've put into our hand? None of us are called to be static. None of us are called to stay where we are. We're called to grow in the things of God. The author Rick Warren, who wrote The Purpose Driven Life, gives away 90% of his income and lives on 10%. Because over the years, he's just, they've continued to increase. He drives around in a battered car with an old plastic watch. He's a pastor of one of the biggest churches in the world. <coughs> but he chooses to increase his generosity. And so we're all called to live that life. So no one is going to strong arm you in this church, no one's going to get on your case. We haven't got a register of big givers and small givers. I'm not going to come chasing you around, but I encourage you at the end of this series to really say, God, how do I help to bring this vision in of generosity and overflow that you're putting in the life of this church? Because the promises are there to be received in God if we'll do our part. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening. If you would like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Whit Riverside.